All right, good morning, brothers. It's time to get rolling. Um, it is 6.01, so <clears throat> I want to get started. Um, if you will, turn to the book of Lamentations. That's where we're going to be looking this morning. And as we consider Lamentations, we're considering it, if I back up um, here, I had told you guys before we started Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes, is that right? No. Let's see if I can get there. Um, just after Song of Songs, sorry, Ecclesiastes, that we were going to move into, if you guys remember, the kind of literature we're in. For, first we were, um, you know, we had done the law, the Torah, the Pentateuch, uh, the five-scrolled book of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It is in that five-scroll book that we get our covenant document, if you guys remember that. Okay, here is the covenant Here's the covenant, and here it's law. here's its law, right, for the people. Um, and we talked about the central promises that run through that covenant as, as they have bearing in the Abrahamic covenant, which would be land, right, go to the promised land, seed, you'd multiply, and blessing to the nations, that somehow Abraham's seed would bless the nations. Um, fundamental to that and to every covenant is going to be that the substance of every covenant, the essence of every I will be your God and you will be my people. Um, and and he's, he's bringing that to be. So that was, that, that, that's all picked up in the first five books, including, hey, as a nation state, as a people, a national church, if you will, here's how you are to behave when you go into the land. And here's how you're to eat and here's how you're to worship and here's how you're, the things you're supposed to stay away from and here's how you're supposed to live morally, and here's how you deal with the laws of your nation, so that the Mosaic Covenant, or the covenant made at Sinai, becomes like a constitution, if you will. Um, if you say, what's the constitution of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament? It's the Mosaic Covenant. It's what you read from Exodus 19, really through Exodus 24, but then you see more details in that in the rest of Exodus and Leviticus. You guys following me so far? And then they go off to the land. Now we read about that in what we call the prophets. Okay, so now it's like, here's this covenant law, covenant document, the covenant. Now here's the covenant history. How did the, hist how did the people live in Israel? And so as they went into the land. So when do they go into the land? What book? Joshua. Joshua. And so we call them the historical books in the Hebrew order of the canon, the book like the Bible that Jesus would have read. They, they would call those the prophets. So Joshua, Judge, uh, Joshua Judges, um, First, Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, those would be the former prophets. Um, and the latter prophets would be the books we call the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, and then you go into the 12, um, so the, the minor prophets. We call majors and minors, because big books, major prophets, small books, minor prophets. And so that's, that's where we'd call that. If you remember, here's the law and the covenant, Here's the history. In other words, here's how they actually behaved. And then the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel stand up and say, here's what God told you to do. Here's what you did. Here's what's coming for you. You guys follow me on that? Um, and here's God's promise to redeem you eventually. And so you see that like prosecuting attorneys, those guys come in. Uh, then I said, we have this whole section of scripture called the writings. The writings would be the third uh, section of the Old Testament. Those writings are going to be pre-exile, before Israel's kicked out of the land, 
Okay, um, they're gonna, so when I say kicked out of the land under um, Nebuchadnezzar by Babylon, remember the northern kingdom of Israel is taken out um, by Assyria, but the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem is, that's when they finally fall under uh, Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. You guys remember that? Okay, and so he, they, you, have some, you have some wisdom literature or writings that come before the exile, and then you have writings that come during the exile, like the book of Daniel. He's carried off, and it's what Daniel did under exile, if you guys remember that, which we'll look at. Then you have um, the writings that come after the exile, like Ezra, Nehemiah, etc. So we're reading writings from those periods. Those writings have wisdom literature in them. So you think about the wisdom literature would be like Job, um, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and now we're moving into another uh, piece of wisdom literature that is bringing us into the post, well, it's bringing us into the exilic period, and then we'll press toward the post-exilic period, okay? So we're moving toward the people being in exile and then post-exile. That's the section we're now in. You guys follow me on that? In the history of Israel. If you want to know the history of Israel, you can learn it in 11 books. Do you guys know that? To understand their history, you can learn it in 11 books. Anybody know what they are? So Genesis, what? What did you say? The Left Behind series. The Left Behind series, yeah, that's, no, 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 not even a good try. Um, but yeah, there are, in fact, stupid answers, aren't there? So, um, the, so if we go through, if we go through, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, okay, those are three. Joshua, Judges, um, how many right now? Five, good. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And you basically have the whole history of Israel from creation to exile and return from exile. You guys tracking with me? Right, so there's Israel, under Egypt, in slavery under Egypt, on the way to the promise, being redeemed on the way to the promised land, then Israel, after they're redeemed, on the way to the promised land, they enter the promised land, then there's Israel in the promised land, there's Israel kicked out of the promised land, and, um, and that's, that's where we're now at. We're moving to Israel kicked out of the promised land, okay? Um, so let me, let me pray as we move into this, what you might call the second group of writings, which if you see them listed up here, Lamentations, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. So first and second Chronicles. Just so you know, I say Chronicles up here. Historically, first and second Samuel are just Samuel. First and second Kings are just Kings. First and second Chronicles are just Chronicles. We've split them all into two books. Just so you know. They weren't originally that way. All right, let me pray and we'll get started. Father, we are thankful for this morning and the opportunity to... Spend time in the book of Lamentations to consider your people in exile due to their faithlessness um, and disobedience that followed from that. We pray that we would uh, be thankful for the revelation of um, your redemptive plan in Scripture, um, and we pray that your Spirit would give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So notice where I said we're moving in this, the second group of writings are about life in exile. Um, and the question is, how are we to walk in wisdom as God's covenant people 
in exile. Now, some of these writings will move us out of exile. So Ezra, Nehemiah, and even at the latter part of Daniel, we'll learn about coming out of exile. Um, how, what, what, how are the people of God supposed to walk in wisdom in exile, right? How are they supposed to do that? Now, we're going to see that particularly played out in three books of the people's walking in wisdom in exile. One is Lamentations, which we're looking at today. The second will be Esther. Okay, so, ne- so you're like, what are we supposed to read for next Friday? Esther. Simple enough. So this Friday was Lamentations. Next Friday, read the book of Esther. So uh, you're like, you go over the whole book of Esther? Yes, it's just one big story. Um, and so we're, it's, it's actually, if you haven't read Esther before, um, if it's one of the books of the Bible you haven't read, it's a fun book to read. Um, I, I want you to pay attention to what's missing from the book. Um, it doesn't, just sit down and read it in one reading. It's not that hard to read in one reading. You know, it'll take you 45 minutes at the most. Um, and just, just read through the book. But this is about the people in exile, right? And then we'll look at that at Daniel. So you'll say, what comes after Esther? Daniel. You're going to do Daniel in one week as well? No, I will not do Daniel in one week. But I, I am doing Lamentations and Esther in one week. Because, what'd you say, Brett? He said 70 weeks. 70, it'll hit. You guys are nerds, man. And I like that about you. I really do. So, um, how do we walk as God's people in exile? Um, what could cause Israel and Judah to face exile might be the first question we need to answer. So why, why did they have to face exile? I want to lay this foundation so you can understand what's happening in Lamentations. Okay, so, so put your finger in Lamentations 1, which is where we're going to read in the main, but go back to Deuteronomy 29. Remember I told you you have a covenant document, and that covenant document makes particular promises to this nation. Um, if you're faithful, if you believe, and you're obedient, um, then you're going to have particular blessings. Actually, just before you look right at Deuteronomy 29, just look over at Deuteronomy 28, and I'm going to tell you to do something that I would not normally tell you to do. Just look at the subheadings they put, okay? Because those subheadings here are not part of the scripture. This is just whoever's translating, put th- putting them in. You guys follow me on that, okay? So what are the subheadings? On 28, what's the first subheading? Blessings for obedience. And then verse, oh, just over verse 15 is? Curses for disobedience. It's, it, it's, if you guys remember the Mosaic Covenant, you're my people, I'm your God, I've redeemed you from Egypt. As a nation, this is how you're to live in the land. If you don't believe, if you chase after other gods, if you commit spiritual adultery, like we talked about last week with Song of Songs, where Israel's compared to the bride who whores after other lovers or idols. You guys remember that? Okay. If you commit spiritual adultery, then I will curse you. If you believe and you're obedient, then I will bless you. Now, I keep stressing believe and are obedient because I or disbelieve and are disobedient because um, obedience or disobedience are the fruit of faith. You guys understand that? Okay, this isn't just like a naked, Israel was just in a covenant of works, nakedly. They just, they just had to 
If they were obedient, God blessed them. If they were disobedient, God cursed them. It's actually if they believed and were obedient, God blessed them. If they disbelieved and were disobedient, God cursed them. How do I know? Just, just You don't have to turn there, but listen to Hebrews 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, we're told that um, quite clearly. In verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, the land still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, contextually, the them there is Israel. Came just as to them, good news. The gospel came to them, by the way. No time to walk that all out. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Listen, did not benefit them, Israel, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. So why did they, what was their fundamental problem? They didn't believe, Right? They, they were formalists. Remember I talked about that, what, it was a couple weeks ago? They participated in formalism. What I mean by that? They liked all the sacrifices and ceremonies and et, the kind of ethnic status and national status, but they had no faith from the heart. So you hear the prophets constantly condemning them for their empty religion. You guys remember that? Okay. Oh, I talked about that in the sermon, didn't I? Difference between, you know, that you, you don't want to be an empty formalist where you just participate in these things with no actual faith. Um, so Israel's told, basically, if you don't believe me and you disobey, you're going to be cursed. If you believe me and you obey, you're going to be blessed. That's, that's what they're told. Now, um, look, look, at, look at Deuteronomy 29 and verse 16. God renews the covenant with them and actually makes a bunch of, uh, we'll make some new covenant promises, but look down at verse 16 of Deuteronomy 29. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt. Here's Moses talking to the people. Now remember, Deuteronomy, Deutero second namas law. It's the second telling of the law. Why is he telling it again? Because Moses is telling the second generation of Israel. In other words, the children. Me and your parents, we really screwed this thing up. Don't do what we did. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Do this. You guys follow me? Okay. All right. So do I try You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. So what's the problem? The bitter root? Remember, this is picked up in Hebrews 12, if you guys remember. You know, root, take, cut out the bitter root, right? Don't let a bitter root spring up among you. The bitter root is the unbeliever, right? Who basically says, um, God forgives. I can do whatever I want. You, you, you guys following that? And he's like, beware. So he goes on. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man and the curses written in this book, that's just the last chapter, right? And then also at the end of Leviticus, 
The curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in the book of the law. And the next generation, your children who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a far land, will say when they see the afflictions of that land and the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. What's he going to do? I'm going to overthrow your land and make it a wilderness. Nothing's going to grow there. I'm going to treat you like I treated Sodom and Gomorrah. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to the, this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then the people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. Isn't that fascinating? They're being told their future. You're going to disobey, and you're going to be cast out of the land, uprooted and destroyed, right? Um, you guys hear that? In other words, before they ever enter the promised land, Moses is telling them, beware, if you disobey, you're going to be exiled, and God's fierce anger is going to turn against you because of your idolatry, your faithlessness. Um, now, he comes in in Deuteronomy 30 and says, but he's going to come make a new covenant with you. It's amazing. You get, you get all of this all the way back in Deuteronomy that we're picking up in the New Testament. Such So now um, let's read about the exile of Judah and the destruction of the temple so we get the, the historical. So there's the prophetic, if you will, or the legal uh, basis for the exile, right, of Israel. Now let's get the historical accounting of their exile so we can see what's happening in Lamentations. 2 Kings 25. 2 Kings 25. What I'm telling you is, here's the covenantal basis for why Israel will be exiled. And in somewhat a prophetic um, telling of that in Deuteronomy 29. You guys tracking with me? Now we're going to look at the actual historical occurrence of it where they actually became faithless to the point God finally said, I'm kicking you out, and they got kicked out. The temple was destroyed. And remember, the thing about the temple is that's where God dwelled, dwelt with them so they might draw near to him. So um, 2 Kings 25. Let me... The very end of 2 Kings, by the way. And in the ninth year... In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. This is 586 B.C. when this is complete. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Remember what he had told them? You're going to be overthrown by another nation. What do you tell them? There's not going to be any, the, the, no crops are going to grow there. Remember that? There's a famine. 
Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls of the, by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city. Chaldeans would be um, these Babylonians. And they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah as they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord, that's the temple, Solomon's temple, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down, and all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem, and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserts, um, and the deserters, sorry, who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke into pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots. You guys following this point? Okay. They sacked the city. They destroyed the walls. Now remember, that's going to be a question because Nehemiah, post-exile, is going to go in to rebuild the walls. There's also going to be a question about the rebuilding of the temple. They, re they destroy the temple. Who's going to rebuild it post-exile? Um, the palaces, the homes um, have all been wrecked. You guys, you guys follow that? And they've all been carried off into exile. That carrying off into exile is how you're going to pick up Daniel 1. Here's Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah being carried off into exile. That's what you're going to pick up um, as young boys. Now, there's one little note that I want to make about this, how 2 Kings ends. Look down at verse 27. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoi um, Jehoiachin, king of Judah, okay, this is the, if you will, the last king that's carried off in exile. On the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. In other words, here's a Babylonian king now freeing him. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. Um, and you say, well, why is that even there? Just to give you a little bit of a taste. Second Samuel chapter 7, no, yeah. God promises to David what? One of his sons would sit on his throne forever. Israel's exiled, the palace is torn down, the walls are torn down, the temple's torn down, they're carried off, their king is in prison, and now this story, when they go off in exile, ends with this note while they're in exile. The king was freed and got, and got treated like a king. And you're picking up this thing, oh, there's some hope. Do you guys follow? There's some hope. There is some, someone will sit on the throne of David. The seed of the woman is still coming. The seed of Abraham of David is still coming. There's still some kind of hope, and you're just ended there. It's an end of that part of the story, right? All right, so we pick up Lamentations in that context. 
Here are the people in, it, in, in exile. Their king is in prison. Their temple is torn down. Their walls of their city, their protection and fortification is torn down. Their palace is torn down. They've, everything's been burned to the ground. There's famine in the land. Life is terrible. It's about as terrible as it can be. It's what you would imagine it would be like if China came and took over America, right? Um, it, like that, the people are wondering what in the heck happened? What have we done that God has turned against us? You guys follow, okay? Now they were told what they've done and so we're gonna look at that. So look at Lamentations chapter one. Now as we look at Lamentations, what I want you to hear is this is a lament. Um, we don't like laments in our culture. We don't even like funerals in our culture, right? We don't like dead bodies, even having them near us. So our cemeteries are as far away from us as we can get them, so we don't have to look at them, right? And when I was in South Carolina, I was reminded of how things used to be. I went to one of my buddy's um, churches. He's a, a Presbyterian pastor in um, the Greenville area of South Carolina, conservative very conservative guy, and went to his church, and the church um, is built, there's like 10 acres or so, and a couple, and an acre, two acres is the cemetery. So when you pull up, there's the cemetery, there's the church right next to it, and, um, and it's old cemetery. It was actually, the, um, I saw the tomb of the original owner of the land who donated the land and the church, the, the, the land for the church and the cemetery, and he was actually a Revolutionary War soldier. And so I'm looking at his tomb of, the, of a guy who fought in the Revolutionary War, who donated this land that my buddy's the pastor of the church in, right? And um, his, his wife, actually's tomb was next to it. She's the one who donated the family estate to build the building for the church. Um, and so you're walking around, the, even the slave tombs were there. So they had, the, the people in that church had built a monument to the slaves because the, um, early on, they had, you know, this, if you walk around, the tombs are like, they have tombstones on them. But the slave tombs are just like a rock. Like, here's a rock, and here's a rock, and here's a rock. And um, so that's their gravestones. And so the people in the church felt like, mm, this isn't good. Um, somebody took all the rocks and built a wall that, that borders the church property. And so I was like, where'd all the, there's a couple rocks there, but where are all the rest of the rocks? Because there's a whole big field of where the slave graves are. Where are the rocks? And they said, oh, they used them to build this wall here. And so, he's, so what happened? He goes, well, several of the church members, you know, long, long time ago thought that was a horrible thing that we did. So they built like this, there's like a monument on the thing for the slave uh, graves that were there. But every day you drive up to church you see the people who came before you in that church in the cemetery, and you're told, hey, it's because of that problem there that we're gathering here, <laughs> right? It's, we're coming here to deal with that problem, not to be entertained, not because we want our ears tickled, not because we want to feel better about ourselves, but because the grave is coming. And so you know that. Well, we're afraid of that. So we don't like that. We don't like Death, we call them celebrations of life, not funerals, because we don't want to mourn and face the fact that it's death anymore. Um, we just want to pretend like it isn't so. Um, uh, that's also why, um, you know, Augustine in the City of God argues that 
that the people uh, of Rome have become weak. Not, not because, not because they, um, they changed to Christianity. They've become weak and overrun by Alaric and the barbarians when Rome was sacked. Why? Why, Brett? Because they became prosperous. And they became so prosperous, they indulged themselves um, constantly. And Augustine actually comes out to their indulgence in book one after the fact they indulged themselves in the theater. They just want to be entertained all the time. And comfortable, yeah. And so he says, he says, he says, you know why we're getting sacked by the barbarians? Like, because you've indulged yourself in the theater because of your prosperity. You've become soft. And as soon as the blood ran in the streets in Rome, Augustine has this great part. It's like, the blood's running in the streets in Rome. As soon as the blood runs in the streets in Rome, you all run to the theater as fast as you can to be entertained. Right? Because um, <laughs> you can't face it. And it's the same kind of thing that we're all concerned about now. We're all hiding ourselves so much from the reality of death because of prosperity entertainment that what happens if a real war happens, right? Um, not, not some campaign where we go drop bombs on some country overseas, but uh, like we actually engage in war with somebody like Russia or China, right? Um, I, I, I would be nervous for us at that point because of the kind of culture we've become. Um, we won't lament. We won't face the reality of death. We're too comfortable. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. Of course, the soldiers will just be looking in the mirror and facing themselves as racists every day rather than fighting. So here we are. Here Israel is lamenting. And I think this is important that we pick up on this. They're facing the reality of sin and death. They're not hiding from it. So I want you to read Lamentations while they have failed spectacularly in their wickedness. Um, God's judgment on them and their wickedness has brought a kind of wake-up call. You guys follow me? So they now lament. Um, that's why, by the way, when you read the Psalter, they're lamenting. There are more laments in the Psalms than there are praise choruses, if you will. Um, and Christian worship as always, through the Psalter, if you guys are what I say, picking up, the note of lamentation or death all the way to praise or resurrection. And so, you know, you want, if you will, the wisdom is to have a life that's shaped that way. Well, the lamentations is shaped that way as well. So it's a lot of lamenting. Why have you turned against us, God? How long until you'll relent? Um, and, and a lot of God has utterly forsaken us, etc. Okay? In fact, there are five poems. Notice that I said Lamentations is a compilation of five poems about the exile of Judah and the destruction of the temple in 586 BC. We might say that Lamentation provides the picture of the utter grief, that shouldn't say in sorry, and sorrow, we do not read about in 2 Kings 25. In other words, when you read 2 Kings 25, it's just a, a factual story of what happened. But there's no like accounting of their sorrow and grief. Lamentations is like the sorrow and grief book that comes along with 2 Kings 25. Are you guys tracking with me on that? So, so here it is. Um, it provides the grief, the lament expected in four poems. So there's five poems in total, but there are four poems um, that start with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So what I'm gonna tell you is, Lamentations chapter one, 22 verses. So this is like, guys, remember last summer we went through Psalm 119 
and we went through in 22 sections, okay? So because there are 22 sections, all, each section starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, well, uh, sorry, and the first section starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and then each section starts with the, with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and you go 22 until you get to the end of the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 consonants, so you know in the Hebrew alphabet. So you're walking through, and no vowels. So you're walking through the Hebrew alphabet with our 22 consonants. Every single poem, Lamentations 1, Lamentations 2, Lamentations 4, and Lamentations 5, every single one of them starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and is 22 verses moving through the whole Hebrew alphabet. Every single one of them is acrostic. Okay? When you get to Lamentations 3, right? Um, now, the poem in chapter 5 is 22 verses, um, though it doesn't follow the same acrostic as 1, 2, and 4, um, but it's 22 verses again. When you get to Lamentations 3, the third poem in Lamentations chapter 3 is the longest. Look, look, look at it real quick. Look at Lamentations 1. Notice you have how many verses? And look at Lamentations 2. How many verses do you have? 22. Now, Look at Lamentations 3. How many verses do you have? 66. Now let me ask you guys a question. What, what do you notice about that? It's 3 times 22. Good. If you're going to give out million dollar loans or whatever, Dan, you should be able to do the 3 times 22. Good. Okay, so <laughs> if you can't, we're all in trouble. Right? So, okay, 3 times 22, 66. If you go to chapter 4, how many verses? And you go to chapter 5, how many verses? 22. You guys following the pattern? Okay. Chapter 3 is, is actually three verses per letter. Right? So they're taking every letter and doing three verses. And it's the heart of the book. So when you're reading Lamentations, um, the heart of the book is in chapter 3. Um, there's five poems, and the middle poem is the heart of it. Um, it's intentionally set apart. It carries the central message of the book. Are you guys following me on that? So I'm not saying the rest of the chapters don't play into it. They certainly do. But chapter three carries the central message of the book. Um, and that message is lament followed by uh, rejoicing and hope. Right? Chapter one, lament. Chapter two, lament. Chapter four, lament. Chapter five, Lament. Look how the book opens, chapter 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. In other words, now it's empty of people, is what he's getting at. How like a widow has she become? She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. Right? Now what happened to Israel? They were carried off into slavery under Nebuchadnezzar. Their city was abandoned. He's describing the city. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations. She's been scattered but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads design mourn, for none can come, none come to the festival. In other words, you, you can't come for the festivals of Israel for worship. 
All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted. Um, dragged away, probably raped, taken as slave wives, concubines. And she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become uh, the head. Her enemies prosper because, now here's the answer. Why? Because the Lord, Yahweh, that's covenant name, has afflicted her. Why? Why has the Lord afflicted her? What's the answer? For the multitude of her transgressions, her children have gone away captives before the foe. Okay, so what, what's happened is Israel's been utterly destroyed. Utterly destroyed, why? Because the Lord is opposed to her. Why is the Lord opposed to her? Because, she's, because of her multitude of sins. Um, he's, he's describing the fact that the curse has come upon them. You've been scattered among the nations. Your land is desolate. Um, you've become other slaves, right? Um, the fe- feasts are over. It, it just, it goes bad. Look, look down at verse 10. There's, there's so much we could say. Well, actually, let's just, let's just keep reading um, from, from verse 6. For from the daughters of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. Um, When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. You guys hear the emphasis there? Therefore she became filthy. All who dishonored her despised her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is triumph. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her, her sanctuary, those who for, whom you forbade to enter your congregation." They've come into the temple and destroyed it. But notice she's compared to a woman who's, who's been exposed and her nakedness has been shown. Um, at, remember in Song of Songs, um, you know, in other passages when we're looking at like Hosea, um, she's going to be compared to like a whore. Um, so, and, and the reason I pick up on that is this, goes, this kind of language takes you all the way back to Genesis 2, which you'll see on Sunday. Um, it takes you all the way back to Genesis 2. Here's the woman given to Adam naked, and they were naked and not ashamed. Um, and God is, and that's going to be a picture of God in, in covenant with his people as his bride, and they're supposed to be naked and not ashamed, right? Stand before God. But instead, they're ashamed because they're sent. You guys follow that, okay? And so you're picking up that shame here. Um, look, look down at verse 14. My transgressions were bound into a yoke, By his hand they were fastened together, they were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. Um, You guys remember what winepress is like? What happens in a winepress? You put all the grapes in a vat, and then what do you do? Anybody ever seen somebody do it? You, you, you just, you trample on them, right, and smash them all, okay? And what, what, he's, what the picture here is, the Lord has taken Israel, 
like a cluster of grapes, put it in the wine press, and he's trampling all of them. Okay? This language will come up again in Revelation, by the way, Revelation 19, um, with regard to God turning on uh, Babylon, the whore, the, one, the, the, the world who's opposed to him. Now, this is going to go through this whole, um, this whole chapter. Like, for example, look down at verse 18 of chapter 1. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering, my young women and young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious in the street. The sword bereaves in the house. It is like death. Okay, so we're hearing what she's saying. Is the Lord in the right for what he's doing? Yes. Uh, could her false lovers, in other words, her false gods she turned to, save her? No. The Lord has turned against her. And he's saying, her being Israel, and, he's, and, and, and she's saying, he's in the right. He's in the right. Um, I deserve this. I have been unfaithful. Now, um, she's going to go on, Israel, going to go on to say, um, the Lord is destroyed without pity. Swallowed up, look at chapter 2, verse 2. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughters of Judah. He's brought down to the ground and dishonored the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He's withdrawn them from, his, from them with his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his, his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid, it in, ru laid in ruins its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. That's the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, the temple. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. That's her religious festivals and her Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation, he has spurned king and priest. Those are the people who lead them, right? The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of, his en of the enemy the wall Walls of her palaces, they raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Are you guys hearing the picture? It gets so nasty and ugly um, that you're, you're, you start to read about um, the horrific things um, the mothers are doing even with their children, right? Look down, at verse, um, look down at verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out. You guys know what that's like? It's, you, you're just throwing up to the point where there's nothing left. You're just sick to your stomach. You're weeping. This person is the picture of a person who's lamenting and crying so hard that they can't stop throwing up. 
My bottles poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They're, they cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bo bosom. In other words, the children are dying. The infants are dying. And the mothers are sitting there watching their children starve to death. What can I say for you? To what compare you, daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. Um, all who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads in the daughter, at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this city what was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We have swallowed her. Oh, this is the day we long for. Now we have it, we see it. Before I move on, in the midst of their sin, what was, what was the problem with the false prophets? Yeah, what the false prophets were not doing was telling them they're sinners. Yeah, they would not expose their iniquities. Rather, what the false prophets did is they said, all's well. God's good. Yeah, yeah, well, just like, just, just go on and um, expect him to keep being kind to you because he has plans to prosper you, right? Um, no matter how unrepentant and unfaithful you are, no worries, right? God's gonna bless you. Now, God's word never told them that, but these false prophets came along and said it. Does God say he's gonna prosper them? Yes, when they're faithful and obedient, right? Um, not when they're faithless and disobedient. Then they're to be called to repentance or God will curse them, but they don't get it. So the false prophets, they tell, they're, they're saying what they're, they're telling them what their itching ears wanna hear. They're ear ticklers, right? Make me feel good, right? So, all right. Now look what he says, verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. We're, I'm talking about Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 29, Leviticus 26, etc. Carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He's thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Okay, so, so it's bad. You guys understand that? Look how, uh, when you get to chapter three, it's gonna start off bad as well. Look at chapter three. Now it's gonna be personalized as a man speaking. I'm the man who has seen affliction. Under the rod of his wrath, he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Now before I go on from there um, and keep reading, when you get to chapter four, um, he goes, he, it's going, to get, it's going to be negative as well. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. Look down at verse um, 11 of chapter 4. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. Okay. Now, look, you want to see how bad it is? Look at verse 10 of chapter four. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. 
What, what are the compassionate women doing? This is how bad it is. The compassionate women, they're boiling their own children and eating them. This is how bad it's become. Um, look at the end of chapter 5. Because we're going to turn there. Let's just go to verse 14. We'll start there. There's all kinds of stuff about the father's sinning and how bad it is, but the old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. Do you remember the old men would sit at the city gate and jaw with each other and talk about wisdom and foolishness, etc. The young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick, for these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. It's a wilderness, an unfruitful field. That's why the jackals are there. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? You're the sovereign king. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of, as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you re- remain exceedingly angry with us. Does it end on a positive note? No, right? It doesn't. Restore us unless you've utterly rejected us. Okay, now, my point is, poem one, song one, if you will, all lament. Song two, all lament. Everything around us has been wrecked. Our families have been wrecked. Our homes have been wrecked. Our city has been wrecked. Our palace has been wrecked. Our temple has been wrecked. Our wives have been carried off and young daughters have been carried off as concubines. Um, it got, the famine got so bad that even I watched my wife boil our children and eat them. Like it's, the nations are mocking us. It's horrific. Okay. Poem one, poem two, poem four. Poem five, all of this has happened in every poem because we sinned against you. We were faithless. We refused to repent. When our prophets came along, they lied to us and told us all was well with us. Even though we needed to repent, they wouldn't tell us we needed to repent. They just kept lying to us um, so that they could be popular with the crowds. Nobody wants to hear that they need to repent, right? <laughs> they need to hear. So, so they've been taken away, our kings in prison, uh, like, you, you, you guys can imagine the scene. It's pretty bad, right? Our young men have been carried off and made into slaves. Um, we have no more priests to, nowhere to have worship. There's no more Sabbath. There's no more festivals. Think about it. Your family's destroyed. Your economy's destroyed. Your capital is destroyed. Your defenses are destroyed. So your security and safety is gone. Your nation is destroyed. Your religion is over. Okay. Can you imagine something more unsettling than that? This is why the guy throws up until his bile is on the ground out of lament. Right? Um, it's hard for us to even imagine desolation at that level. Um, but here it is. And he's saying, all this happened because we transgressed against God we did not believe. And he warned us, and he warned us, and he warned us, and we stubbornly continued in our sin. Okay? 
Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5. The first part of chapter 3. That's the message. Some people ask, well, where's the hope? Well, it's in the second part of chapter 3. But before I turn there, I want to ask an, an interesting question. Why write a series of five poems where the hope falls in the middle so that you have lament, 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 some hope, lament, lament. Why not lament, 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 hope, and end with, you know, the happy ending. Why is the hope fall in the middle? So it drives a point home, but I want you to think about human suffering. Any of you guys suffered significantly? When you suffer significantly, um, your suffering doesn't look like a clean line, does it? It's not lament, 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 hope, all's well. If you're still in the middle of it. I'm not talking about it's ended. Lamentations is written for a man or by a man or a nation. Still in the middle of it. They haven't reached the end where they go, okay, things have cleaned up. All's well now, right? They're not there. They're in the middle of the suffering. And what the poems are doing is saying, this is what it looks like when you're suffering. You lament, you lament. It looks more circular than it does a straight line. You lament, you lament. You feel hopeful. You think rightly for a bit. You go back to lamenting, right? You, you guys understand that? That's what it really is. If you walk with people through suffering, or if you suffer seriously, and it hasn't been relieved yet, I'm talking about without relief. Um, you will watch yourself go through or watch another person go through lamentation, lamentation, I feel hopeful, lamentation, lamentation. You guys, you guys understand? And the poems are just matching that human experience. They're, they're matching that cyclical kind of view of what happens with someone who's not yet relieved, right? All right, so let's look at some of his relief. Look down at 319. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of come to the end of his lament. Remember, this chapter is three times as long as the rest of the chapters because it's trying to bring you to focus on the hope that is there. Even when nothing around you demonstrates there's any hope. You guys understand that? The author of this cannot look around and see any reason for any hope. He ends the book wondering if the Lord has just turned against them forever. Okay? In that sense but he actually knows the Lord hasn't turned against them forever. I, I want to state that. He ends the book wondering, has the Lord spurned us forever? But he knows the Lord will not spurn them forever. Again, that's what human suffering in faith actually looks like, doesn't it? Do we know who the author is? We don't. We speculate about it. Um, Solomon, maybe? Probably not. There's, there's questions. Um, there's, there's a lot of questions. I, don't, I try not to speculate too much about the author because we're, we're just not told. Um, it's told like from the perspective of Israel corporately. Um, but I, I, I write that because I want you to consider that for a minute. It, or say that because I want you to consider that for a minute. If you're a person who's suffering... You can know the truth and still wonder. Right? Okay. Um, if you haven't gone through it yet, you will. 
and you'll know what it's like. It's coming because you're a part of the fall too, right? Um, verse 19, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Now listen, um, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. You ready? What's his hope? Verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Okay, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Fundamentally, there's my hope. Now, where does he get the notion that the steadfast love of the Lord, this is what we're talking about, his hesed, his covenant faithfulness. His love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Where does he get that idea? Well, from God. Yes, of course. But are there any particular biblical texts he gets that idea from? Now, remember, this is a people who violated the Mosaic Covenant. Is there anywhere God reveals himself this way to Israel? See, now I'm asking you to remember your Bibles. Why don't we look at Exodus? Just turn back to Exodus. You remember Israel um, wickedly sins against the Lord while Moses is on Mount Sinai getting the, the tablets of stone. What do they tell God? Hey, listen, we'll do all the words of the law. I mean, literally, while it's being carved out, they're already breaking it with a golden calf, right? Okay, Moses comes down, he's angry, he intercedes on their behalf, um, and then what does he ask the Lord? What does he ask him? After Moses intercedes for Israel, what does he ask the Lord? What does he want to do? I want to what? You guys don't remember what Moses asked the Lord? Nope. He intercedes for them so they won't be wiped out. But he wants to see something. What does he want to see? I want to see your glory. Right? The Lord's like, I'll let you see a glimpse of my hind part. In other words, the low part of my glory. What he's saying. <laughs> right? You guys understand that? Okay, so I'll, I'll, so I'll let you get a little tiny glimpse. A little tiny glimpse of the, 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 the lowest part of my glory, if you will. Because the rest of it would kill you. So he passes by, puts him in a cleft of a rock and covers him and passes by, right? And this is what you get. So look at Exodus 34. Exodus 34 and verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God what? Merciful, Merciful gracious slow to anger, and abounding in what? Steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Okay, so he understands that this God who is being just is not merely just. It's not merely just. 
Is God being just? Does, he, does the, lament, the man lamenting, or Israel lamenting, understand that God is being just in his destruction of Israel? Yes. But what he also knows is God is not merely just. That's not all he is. And so he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. What what psalm does this remind you guys of? The Lord is my portion. I've got nothing else, but I have him. Anybody remember the psalm? The Lord is my, my portion, my cup. Huh? What, 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 what psalm? I want to say it's 16, but I know that's wrong. You want to say it's 16? There, there is that there, but look at Psalm 73. Remember Asaph? He's, he's like, my foot almost slipped because I look in the wicked are prosperous and, and the righteous are suffering. You guys remember that? And he's like, how the heck could that be? In Psalm 73, he's like, he, he, he says, but I consider the future. In other words, the end of all things. And I saw that you're going to destroy the wicked. And then he says, verse 23 in Psalm 73, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my what? My portion forever. It's like, you know, I don't have anything else, but I've got you. And in eternity, that matters more than everything else. In the grand scheme of things, that matters more than anything, everything else. Look, at the, the sufferer comes into the church on Sunday and looks out at the grave and knows that's their end. You, you can tell them, you don't have anything worldly, but but eventually nobody will. (laughs) They'll all be buried out there with you. They'll have nothing left, but... That's right, some get a nicer tune, some others. But look, here's the deal. What happens? It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Is the Lord your portion in your cup, or will you be wrecked by him eternally, right under his wrath? And, and that's where he comes back to. I've got nothing else, but I've got you. That's where Lamentations is at. Um, look at verse 25 of Lamentations 3. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust, there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. Okay, remember, Jesus is gonna pick this up. Turn the other cheek. This is, if, if you want to know that, this is the context for that, and it's talking about being insulted, not being physically attacked, right? You guys understand the distinction there? Okay, that if, if someone sl- slaps you on, what cheek what are you getting slapped on? Do you remember? You're getting slapped on the right cheek, okay? Which means it's a right-handed person backhanding you, typically, 
which is a way of insulting, not a physical attack. Okay? It's, it's, way, it's, it's like cussing you out. It's not, it's not like they're threatening your life. They're just, you know, this kind of a business. All right? They're not balling up their fist and punching you in the face. That's not what Jesus is referring to. That's not what Lamentations is referring to. He's getting this language from here. It's it, when they strike you on the cheek, the one who strikes and let, let him be filled with insults. It's okay to be insulted like that. You don't have to, you can just turn the other cheek and keep being insulted, right? Um, he's not talking about self, don't commit self-defense. This is where, by the way, reading texts in their biblical context is helpful because actually it's defined for you right here in Lamentations. It's fine for you to be insulted by your enemies. Take the insults, right? For the Lord will not cast off forever. The Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve. The Lord is not unjust, right? Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High the good and bad, that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? <laughs> like you're complaining about the punishment of your own sins. The Lord is not unjust and the Lord is not lacking in mercy. Don't whine about your, the punishment for your sins. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killed, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us, devastation, destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. Okay, so you're going to say, is this still the comfort part, the hope part? Yes. What's the hope? Look, you're being judged for your sins and punished for your sins, Israel. Um, as the Lord justly promised uh, you, you that he would, he's fulfilling his word against you. But, but the Lord is not merely just. The Lord is also merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. He's gonna keep his covenant faithfulness to you. 
So hope in that. He's your portion, your cup forever. What about your enemies? They insult you all the time. They, they backhand you. They mock you. They curse you. They surround you. They treat you unjustly. What about them? God sees it, and he'll judge them. He'll utterly destroy them. He'll cut them off. Is that hope? Yes. If you've ever been treated this way, though righteous, you understand. You guys, follow, you guys following me on that? Okay. He's just, he's just telling them, um, in the end, Babylon and the nations look successful right now, but in the end, um, God will deal with them. Right? Um, and that's part of Israel's hope. It's part of her hope. God, God has raised up Babylon as a judgment against Israel. We've heard this in the other prophets, didn't we? God raised up Babylon as a judgment against Israel. But that does not mean that Babylon's sin against Israel is going to go unchecked. God sees and God will deal with her. Do you guys follow that? Okay. Questions you have. Um, I basically covered all this. Questions you guys have. Esther. Esther. Esther for next week. Let me see. Yep, that's my next empty slide. Esther, and then, and then Daniel, and then, let's see, Ezra, and then, yep, so Esther for next week. Um, qu any questions you guys have? Okay. Hopefully you're seeing these, these books a little better and what's happening with Israel. So next week, we're still, when you read Esther, remember that the Jews are in the same place they are in Lamentations. They're in exile. So when you read Esther, they're in exile. Um, and you're gonna, you're gonna notice that because pagan kings basically rule the day. But, but read, read that book, understanding that. See if you, you can come back and tell me what, what is notoriously missing from the book of Esther. If you already know don't give it away, right? Don't give it away. Let the other guys read it and try to figure it out. Some of you know, don't go and whisper to them and tell them what it is. Um, just let them read it and figure it out. What's, what's kind of surprisingly missing from the whole book? Um, so we'll look at the book of Esther next week. Um, if you're wanting to read ahead, um, then I would tell you to start reading Daniel um, as well. So we'll probably spend... Well, we'll spend at least two weeks on Daniel, um, maybe three or four, depends on how well we deal with eight through 12. One through seven isn't so bad. Um, we can move through that probably in one, in fact, I know we can move through one through seven in one week, but eight through 12 is a little more challenging. So, um, all right, especially because it has lots of prophecies about the future, um, so a future from Daniel's vantage point and some from our vantage point. So um, things like the resurrection of the dead would clearly be future, Daniel 12. So, all right, um, Esther for next week. You guys got it? We're gonna have breakfast at Old River, uh, Callaway and Brimhall if anybody wants to come, as usual. So let me pray. Father, we're thankful for the chance to uh, spend time in your word together uh, for the privilege of reading about this lament. Um, we recognize Father, that um, we, our sins justly deserve your wrath, uh, 
that you are a God who is just. We give thanks that you are also a God who is abounding in steadfast love and mercy, who's gracious, who forgives our iniquity, who treats us far better than we deserve. We pray that we would have hope in you, um, knowing that you are our portion in our cup. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.